You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Hey, Power yeah. Athlete Radio. Welcome to another episode <laughs> yeah. of Power Athlete Radio. And we're joined by the guest of Power Athlete Radio, Joel, Mr. John Wellborn. John Wellborn, friend of the podcast, and we welcome guest Joel Rather, founder of Fast Performance in Denver, Colorado, and long list of experience, including University of Denver, sports performance director for the NLL, that's the National Lacrosse League's Mammoth, trainer for hunters, I would say trainer of the stars, but trainer of hunters, and educator. Where he, we had the opportunity to connect at the latest NSCA tactical conference this year up in San Antonio. And uh, isn't it down in San Antonio? Are we north of San Antonio? Left of Austin? Well, I think we're north of San Antonio. Out so in up San, to San Antonio would be like if we were in Mexico. Well, we like to be at an undisclosed location uh, at Power well, Athlete. Yeah. Uh, well, and Joel, we've been at every conference basically speaking, just rive, rivaling each other. And I'm glad we had the opportunity to connect this time around. Were you guys like secret rivals where like you're like against each other, but you, then you never really meet and then finally you meet and you're like, we're, we have been friends the whole time? Yes, because we're always speaking on the same thing. It was change your direction. And then it was uh, yeah. some weightlifting for tactical pop this time around, man. So I'm glad yeah. we actually got the chance to meet. Yeah, no, it was good. I, I it, was, it was interesting because I know last year, like we're – two years running now of being back to back in the same room. And, um, and I know last year I was like, Oh boy, like, I hope I don't like piss all over his, you know, parade here with what I'm going to talk about. And, and this year we actually talked before that, that I went on cause I was before you both times. And I'm like, all right, um, let's, let's try and do better this year. Cause I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to try and uh, step over stuff that you're either going to cover and, and I don't know, just whether it's poor planning or scheduling or whatever else, but um, I don't know. I don't claim to I'll know. I'll go with poor planning. That's just accidental. <laughs> but did, I mean, did he peel on your leg? Well, I, I was getting in the zone. You know, I oh, like to just stay in the bathroom yeah, and cry not chief, I'm not, I'm in and the then do a power, mo- a power pose before my presentation. So I didn't get the opportunity to see him, but they have a recording that I sh- should tune into on NSCA TV. Uh, Joel, you just came back from a a hunt and I want to start there. So we have a a big population of hunters within our, our listening community and a large contingent of hunters contingent, much better uh, phrase than I said. So yeah, man, let's start there. Let's, let's talk about your latest endeavor. You said you had some adventure going and, uh, Yeah. yeah, man, get into that. And then how you got into hunting to begin with. Um, well, I mean, I, I grew up in Nebraska and uh, my folks grew up in the Dakotas. And so, I mean, at a young age for me, my dad got us into, you know, doing, you know, our hunter safety early on and, and hunting upland birds. And I grew up in an area where there was a lot of waterfowl hunting and, and kind of farming communities and stuff like that. So it was just seemed kind of natural and, and something that, you know, everybody did where I grew up. Um, as a form of, you know, sport, obviously, but at the same time of sustenance and people, you know, 
hunting deer and things like that every year for food and, and stuff like that. Not as if, you know, people were starving or running around in loincloths or anything like that, but, you know, it was just kind of a, a way of life. And, and for me, when I moved to Colorado, I have a, a really good friend of mine who uh, his dad used to be a guide out in the South gate of Yellowstone. And so they were big game hunters, moose and elk and, and stuff like that. And, and so I got my first opportunity about, 20 years ago to, to go on my first elk hunt. And, um, if you've ever been elk hunting, it doesn't take much to get you hooked, um, chasing those guys up in, in the high country. And that evolved more into kind of a passion for archery. And, um, for me, it was something that, you know, being in, in the mountains at, in September when, you know, the aspens are changing and things like that. I mean, it's just, it's super addicting and to hear elk bugling and, and kind of the chase that that goes alongside of it and obviously the physicality portion of it which um we just actually were tracking all of our metrics from our last hunt that uh, we just got back from and you know covered 40 miles in in a week and and over you know 10 or 15,000 foot of elevation and so we've been trying to kind of utilize you know what I've done now for a profession as far as strength and conditioning is done and, and kind of created an offshoot in our company called Hunt Hike Harvest Outdoors, where I just kind of felt like it was it was a good space for me to utilize what I do for a living and kind of apply it to what I like to do as a passion and, and something that um, is a little bit different, but at the same time has some some opportunities there that that are um really been kind of enlightening just as you guys know in the strength conditioning world that's you know there's a lot of you know kind of infighting and systems-based guys and everyone you know kind of elbowing their way around for territory within the strength conditioning world and and we've been just pleasantly surprised that that kind of our venture into that side of it on the hunting side it's just been really inviting it's been a lot of fun we're working on some really cool stuff there and and at the same time um it's getting us into the outdoors more which is which is awesome and and um whether you're successful or not um is always the challenge and uh this year was was definitely nothing short of that so um but you know we we uh we try to capture as much of it we try and film as much of it as we can um we're utilizing as much as as kind of my strength conditioning brain can go into in terms of collecting data utilizing stuff that i know from evidence-based side and, and trying to apply it into this and bring it into that world and so it's been a fun endeavor we're about three years into it and um you know the more i do the more you know kind of inroads that we're making and and hopefully at some point you know who knows maybe a guy may, might make a dollar in there somewhere <laughs> yeah are you trying to get more and more people involved so you can capture and track more data yeah um i, I actually just got off a phone call before we jumped on here uh we're in the process of of our second iteration of an event that we started last year we partnered with a group called Western Hunt Fest. And the really cool part about that was we met them at a different archery event last summer uh, at Total Archery Challenge, which is held throughout the country. There's tons of them. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, and they were starting an event that really kind of fit, fit us perfectly in that um, they're having a, a scenario-based, kind of real-world-based 3D archery shoot. Uh, there's an elk calling contest that's involved with that. And then they actually have a pack-out challenge. And so that's kind of where we came into play, where it's a simulation-based kind of event where, 
either an individual or a team of two has to pack out the equivalency of what would be uh, an entire elk plus head and antlers over the course of, you know, a, a predetermined uh, course that we set out that was about a mile long. And it's basically about 250 pounds that they have to carry from start to finish either solo or with a partner and do it as fast as they can. And then for us, we started kind of tracking the metrics with that, you know, what was the load that they took per per trip, um, what was the speed? And then, you know, we're trying to enhance that into doing some other stuff where um, we want to try and add real-time data to that and, and heart rate work and, and put a lot more um, kind of research in, in, in our head behind how we can bring some of that information and use it as a way not only to give people kind of an experience to see what it's actually like to do that because it's super, super challenging, but at the same time, utilize that to collect data and then share it back to the community. So um, we're going to be re kind of um, instituting that this next coming season, we're uh, actually expanding and going to do one in New Mexico uh, right now is targeted. And then another one in Colorado again, and then hopefully at some point we're planning on expanding that into Montana too. So what uh one how are you collecting the data and also what are the problem that you're trying to solve um I, I know when you know when we venture into something new i always look at it from like you know what's the problem i'm trying to solve what's the solution i'm offering and more importantly sure. what are the you know what's the audience clamming for um i know in the hunting stuff uh probably a lot of guys have nine to five jobs and hunting is not a full-time endeavor so right. i mean they probably don't train enough and probably aren't fit enough and then all of a sudden it's hunting season and they want to go 100 miles an hour and you know, who knows, some guy has a heart attack or, you know, injuries or overuse. And so I'm wondering, like, what's the problem? And I mean, is it a, a Garmin type of deal where you're collecting data with, uh, you know, wearables and whatnot? Yeah. So, I mean, the wearables piece obviously fits into that. Um, I think there's there's some some layers and levels to it. Um, if we get down and, and really want to kind of dig into it, I mean, ideally for us, what we do in-house, like in our facility here at FAST, is we have a metabolic lab. And so if we can actually get people into the lab, we like to uh, put them through like a functional threshold for power test, which allows us to then figure out like where can they operate kind of maximally in order to maintain like maximal aerobic speed or whatever that might look like um, so that you don't get into this kind of like, you know, going 100 miles an hour and doing kind of like the, the tortoise and the hare where you've got to, you know, stop and start and stop and start and, and try to utilize that information and provide that back to them to say, hey, you know, we know if you stay within, you know, this heart rate range that you can continue to move, right? And so some of the other challenges with that obviously are altitude. Um, you know, if we don't have raw data on people, I think that the thing that we're trying to do is figure out like, give people an exercise and understanding like what that actually feels like. Cause like, again, if you haven't done that um, it's super taxing, you know, we know through, through literature and, and some research out there that, you know, an, a, a difficult day on the mountain, you know, guys may have expenditures up to like 7,000 calories in a day. And so, you know, for us, it's trying to utilize as much of that data as we can. And we use, uh, we're working with a company called Biostrap and Biostrap has some phenomenal capabilities in terms of their sensors. Um, and what they're able to do is track everything, you know, our heart rate, our heart rate variability. Um, they actually are partnered with one of the biggest uh, sleep research companies in the world. 
Um, so there's some information there that we're, we're tr trying to collect as well. You know, there's some implications as far as like what sleep does at altitude. And so, you know, for us, it's taking all of those pieces in as much as we can and then trying to deliver them back to people so that you're, you're kind of preparing them or at least giving them better ammunition for them to understand a little bit better what they're either going to embark upon or if they want to take it to an, a higher level, be able to dial that in even to a, a much better understanding of how can I operate better? Because as I said, you know, over the course of, you know, most guys are going to hunt for five, six, seven days in the high country. And, you know, there's guys I know that are upwards of putting on a hundred miles in a week. And so, you know, it, it's tough when you look at that and say, well, you know, this is a marathon and not a sprint. How do I make sure that, you know, as I go through day one, all the way out to day eight, nine, or even more, um, I've got buddies that were out like 16 days in, in the, the month of September and being able to just, you know, be able to put your boots on every day and continue, you know, trekking the mountains. So, wow. No, uh, last elk hunt I went on was in California. Um, a buddy of mine is oh, ranch nice. there and I was able to pull a Thule elk. And, yeah, uh, are, are awesome. man, uh, we chased those elk for three days through the mountains and I couldn't get within a quarter mile of them. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> like the, uh, like there was no coverage, like there was nowhere to stock. It was basically like Hills. Like we'd hear them, we'd take off running, get to the next Hill and they'd be on the next one. We'd take off running and they'd be at the next one. And it was finally on the fourth oh, yeah. day. Uh, the guy who I was hunting with was like, uh, let's like, we're not going to get close for, uh, uh, you know, for arrow. So I pulled out a gun and, uh, ended up getting a nice shot on one from one hillside to the next. Hey, and, uh, but, yeah. first elk I ever shot was with a rifle. So. Oh man, I, I had all these visions of grandeur of like taking this thing with a bow and I didn't even get within like sniffing distance of these things. And then the shot that I, out there. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it, it, it's all rolling hills. And then I think, uh, the shot, uh, from one hill to the next, I think was like, it was like 500 yards, but it was also a 300 wind mag, which, you know, it right. was, was fine. And, um, you know, they were like, Oh, ethical shots, but I'm like, dude, 300 wind mags good to, far but i mean that was as close as we could get yeah and, um, i mean they're uh they're they're amazingly intelligent animals and, and at the same time um you know we always say you know if an elk's walking away from you you could run and still not catch it <laughs> just because of, of how much ground they cover um you know there's some interesting kind of information about elk you know as far as just even their makeup you know like elk are the fastest uh reproducing uh, I think animal, uh, in terms of blood. And, and so even when you, you know, you see, we've, we've had elk that we've harvested before and, you know, you find broadheads in them and stuff like that. And they're still running, you know, running the country as if they're perfectly fine. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and obviously nobody wants to do that, but unfortunately, you know, it's uh, it's what we call it hunting and not killing. And, it's <laughs> you know, unfortunately. Well, explain the experience in different States. Cause in Texas, everybody it's private land yeah. leases. You sit so, in a blind, so, uh, you drink whiskey. Yeah. It's not very uh, physically active. Well, Texas is interesting because <laughs> only 3% of the land here in Texas is public land. So like, you know, which is crazy because in California, yeah, it's all public land, right? And then I'm sure in other places, but yeah, I mean, to be able to hunt here, you have to, you know, know somebody or know the lease and, and uh, they have these, uh, uh, these high fence farms down here where I used oh, to, yeah. where I joke that um, basically you, the best luck you have is putting peanut butter on the barrel. <laughs> and then just kind of like putting it out and waiting for the deer or whatever it is to right. come up and lick it off the barrel and then they shoot them. So right. it's, yeah, um, we, yeah. we have a, we have a, it's spot. not like that where you guys are at. 
No. Um, one of our sponsors is actually Numa um, Outdoors, and they're based out of out of Texas. Um, they also own uh, Los Casadores down there. Mm. And um, it's funny that the CEO of the company has talked about actually shoot because there's elk in Texas as well. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's talked about actually shooting an elk uh, on private ground and ended up killing it on a golf course. <laughs> well, the, um, I mean, there's all those monster elk uh, in the high country in Arizona and New Mexico. So I, I would imagine that they, you know, I mean, obviously elk aren't necessarily too focused on state line, but I know that the, like that oh. western part of uh, Texas, you know, when you get out there on, on the border of, uh, you know, New Mexico, I'm sure there's, you know, ample. Oh, yeah. The, well, and, and the the job that the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has done in terms of expansion of elk in in North America is is astounding. I mean, right now there's like, I think there's like something 10,000 10, head or more in Kentucky now and, you know, in Michigan and, and, you know, as I mentioned, growing up in Nebraska, um, Nebraska has a once in a lifetime tag and the, the elk that are there that are now, you know, running cornfields and stuff like that are astronomical. I, I know someone who shot just uh, the, the week that we were out, his kid drew, drew the tag and shot almost a 400 inch elk in Nebraska. Wow. And so... So they they uh, they find their way into uh, whatever country they want. They don't necessarily just exist in the high country now, and and uh, which is good. Um, but a lot of those states obviously are a lot more difficult to actually be able to hunt them. Again, private land tag availability, and that's why Colorado is so difficult. Just from from that perspective, is Colorado's kind of realistically the the go to destination because it's the easiest place to get a tag and we have the highest number of over the counter out of state non resident people that come to Colorado to hunt elk because you, you don't need, you know, a ton of preference points or, or things like that that exist in a lot of states in order to be able to just go hunt um, and the amount of public land is probably I would I would assume or or I think based on on everything that I know is is probably the highest as well, which which is fine. You know, we always say you're, you're not hunting hunters, you're hunting elk and and uh, the people that are successful typically put in more work and, and get a few ridges deeper than than the guy that's not willing to get off his ATV. So, yeah, my uh, uh, my next door neighbor when I lived in California, um, he was uh, owned a huge uh, fish company um, fishing uh, Angel Ocean Seafood. And one of his uh, distillery or uh, um, like uh, processing plants was up in Oregon. And uh, one of his boat captains, who I ended up becoming friends with, uh, those guys hunted all of Oregon. And the pictures of the Roosevelt elk that those guys hunted were absolutely insane. Uh, I mean, yeah, but also those are the biggest. Yeah. Like, I mean, but but if you see the terrain at which they hunt, it's like 45 degree vertical mountains up and down. I mean, the. Like the yeah. video of the of those guys hunting those things, um, it's gnarly. It's yeah, like that to me is by far the most demanding terrain that I've ever seen for those guys. And then once they kill it, to be able to pull these things out and pack it out, I mean, just like the the toughness and the capacity and just like the grit of these dudes was just something I I was like, man, that's yeah. that's legit. We, we always say when uh, when when the fun is done, the work begins with elk hunting <laughs> because. <laughs> As soon as, soon as uh, an elk hits the ground, the work actually starts. So, <laughs> well, you got to quarter it, you got to get it out, and and uh, you know you're not leaving that big rack out behind. So, I mean, it's a lot of work, no. but yeah, it's um, it's always impressive. I mean, for those guys, what they'll do is they'll go out in teams of five, and they kind of pick ahead of time who's the shooter, and then they got four other dudes to help get it all together because these things are, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't even remember. I mean, they're thousand plus pounds, and they got to be able to get these things processed and get them out in, in time. So. Pretty impressive. Yeah. 
So, I mean, the, um, uh, what's amazing for me, uh, when you kind of look at like the gentle hunt hunting and actually I had a good conversation with Bert Soren about this. He's like the amount of available resources that the individuals that are into hunting have from, you know, from not only gear that they wear, but also the equipment and this and bows. And he's like, when you look at this, like the available income that these individuals have to actually go out and be proficient at hunting, he goes, you know, there's a, a huge, very deep market in this and oh, yeah. being able to work an intelligence strength conditioning program into these individuals uh, is something that, you know, we've, we've been approached a million times on. Um, the one hard thing is, is a lot of people sell this kind of, and you know, because you deal in the same deal, like uh, playing football, the only sports specific training I did involved a football or pads or hitting. Everything else was this large block GPP training, anything I did in the weight room, anybody that starts selling sports specific training in the confines and the walls of within a training facility, it didn't really never really gelled for me. So I know in the hunting stuff, uh, there's kind of this old school idea of like, you just got to go out there and pack and, you know, go out there and just, you know, put yourself through it. And uh, while I believe that's important in one piece in the training, there's also a big strength component and the idea of like durability and making sure that you're strong under load. And uh, can you get a little bit into what your approach is and more importantly, how you're working to kind of change the paradigm from that traditional, just like, just go out and pack a heavy right. pack for hours. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I think that the interesting part with that is what what I found, especially as you're trying to add some meat to it, which is, you know, more than just sets and reps and just, you know, let's lift weights and, and get strong and I need to be in better shape, whatever shape means, right, to, to whoever the individual looks like. I mean, that's a very broad term, right? I tell people fat people finish marathons all the time. So, <laughs> Well, I always say whenever people say I'm shape. trying to work myself into shape, I'm like, well, I mean, uh, there's good round shapes. I've seen a yeah. lot of pear shapes. Exactly. So, um, but I think that the interesting part for me is a lot of the the research and, and things like that that I draw from, interestingly enough, a lot of it realistically comes from looking at the tactical space and, you know, looking at, you know, guys like 10th Mountain guys and, and you know, high altitude soldiers and things like that, where, you know, most of those, those individuals are going to have gear on, they're going to have a kit on. And there's a lot of research that's based from that realm that basically what I've done is try to take that and just, you know, more or less spin it in, you know, just, just a different color of, of the brush stroke into what that looks like from a hunting perspective, because, you know, my, my day pack is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 pounds when I get all of my stuff, you know, into it and, and take off on foot, um, looking at specific altitudes, you know, that you're going to have deprivations that exist with that. And then you can start to look at what, your output is going to look like, right? Like what's a typical day. And if you're, if you're planning, obviously you can kind of predict some of those things. Um, but at the same time, some of the other things that come into play are, are looking at, you know, rucking protocols and stuff like that. And, and understanding that being on uneven surfaces is going to be almost, you know, just a, a given. And so the resiliency factor, as you kind of mentioned, especially when you look at like foot and ankle and, and, and those types of things and building up some tolerance from that perspective, um, because those are things that, you know, if you train traditionally, which is perfectly fine, you know, mentioning, you know, general prep and, and obviously that stuff's important and we don't, you know, discount those things. But 
as we start to get a little bit closer to you know the actual event um, we look at doing things on uneven surfaces like lunge patterns and step up patterns where we're downhill we're side hill we're inverted we're everted um, and, and those types of things in order to try and give a little bit more of of an atmosphere that is going to at least give not necessarily replication but some dosage of, of stuff that's going to be more like what they are going to you know have to encounter when they get out there and then structurally i look at uh having a pack on every day right and and you're going to have it on for hours and hours and so you know we look at what's going to uh be important in terms of posture right like what's their posture look like um how is their integrity in terms of being able to you know hold and, and withstand that without breaking down or you know back issues and you know what's their pelvis position look like teach them how to you know even you know how to load their pack appropriately people have horrendous packs and things like that that they you know aren't fitted for appropriately that over time you know it's kind of like uh, you know as as chris knows uh you know my presentation at, at tsac this year was you know build more calluses and less blisters and you know kind of the nuance behind that is if if we do things poorly or if we do things without context of what our end goal is um when you compound those over thousands and thousands of foot strikes and day after day after day um and we do them from poor positions or if we aren't structurally sound things are going to eventually pop up and we're going to break down and to me like that's the mission with how i try to get people to understand that in order for us to not only you know you know being successful on a hunt has a lot of different i think kind of uh, interpretations obviously filling tags and, and accomplishing the goal is one thing but at the same time you also you know it's a vacation right for everybody mm -hmm. it's something that they do every year and look forward to and you want them to to enjoy that experience and if the whole thing uh resides around survival and and misery then you know odds are even though some people may like that and feed off of it which is perfectly uh, fine i mean uh, we used to know. run crossfit gyms i mean dude i used <laughs> to watch people come in and get absolutely fucking murdered and then the comment would be like great what time tomorrow and i'm like these people are twisted up so yeah, I mean, there right. is a, a section of the population, the closer they get. Uh, my biggest issue uh, isn't necessarily those individuals. It's the uh, individual who hasn't trained, um, you know, who, you know, has to build the aerobic base. It doesn't have the capacity who, you know, goes and buys a, you know, $600 pair of boots and, you know, only wears them once and then thinks he's going to show up and go 16 days, uh, yeah. you know, and like that's where, uh, you know, that's where I get a little nervous, especially with uh, some older guys. Because, I mean, dude, it's extremely physically demanding. We had Aaron Schneider on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, he's like, I've, the amount of times I've pissed blood and just kind of went through. I mean, he's on the extreme end of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. High altitude. You know, water, from Kufaru? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he's a... Uh, he's um, next level. Yeah, he's an absolute psychopath, which fucking I, I absolutely <laughs> loved. Guy. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> he's uh, awesome. Uh, so, but like, you know, we, like we uh, gravitate towards that more extreme nature. And um, that's something where, you know, like, uh, and dude, the amount of emails that I've gotten where people are like, hey, uh, you know, I've booked this hunt and I have X amount of time to get ready. You know, my question has always been like, okay, what does the training look like? You know, where are you in this whole scheme? 
uh, you know, you're telling me you're working, you know, 50 hours a week behind a desk and only getting one day a week. Like, I don't know in good conscience one day a week is going to prepare you for the demands of what you signed up for. So I think yeah. balancing like the realistic aspect and then also um, the physicality of hunting with a bow is so much different than a rifle. Whereas yeah. I feel like, you know, you pack in with a rifle and, you know, if you got, you know, a legit gun, I mean, you know, I mean, you can take some decent shots. Whereas with the, with the bow, I mean, 80, 60, 80 yards. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty consistent at 60, 80 is pretty not that consistent for me. I yeah, mean, but 60, 40 is my effective range. Yeah, like 40 to 60 is, is kind of my gold standard. I, I mean, prefer, I prefer 15. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I just saw Bert posted. Bert had an amazing shot at 80, which I don't know if I would take an 80 shot. I mean, but on, on elk, which is a huge body, I mean, like, I, like, I heard that. I mean, when he posted that, I was like, shit, dude, that's a hell of a shot. Like, I, you know, 40 to 60 is kind of my like stretch, but also, you know, he shoots his bow every day and the amount of training he does and the hunts and the archery things. So, I mean, he's yeah. doing all the things that he's supposed to, to prepare him to take that. So how do you, yeah. like, how do you get people started? How do you balance them? How do you breathe that like sensibility into individuals? Um, you know, cause I think most people overreach. I mean, we see it all the, all the time within our own training programs. Uh, you know, a lot of people when they start are overreaching. And, uh, as my dad used to say sometimes, so just a funny note, my, uh, uh, we had a birthday party. Uh, my dad's passed away, but we had a uh, birthday party and we were sitting there having margaritas and my adopted brother, Steve-O, uh, has a heavy hand. So he overpours my dad and my dad started kind of making ass of himself. And so my mom got pissed at him. And the next day he calls me and is like, uh, Hey, was I acting stupid? I'm like, uh, a little bit. Uh, he's like, well, your mother's mad at me. He's like, it looks like the 20 year old got the 70 year old in trouble. <laughs> so he's like in my head, you know, I'm still in my twenties, but all of a sudden right. you know, I'm the, that kid inside's getting me in trouble. So I, I imagine sure. a lot with the hunting, uh, a lot of people are like, Hey, I used to be able to do this or I hunted a lot and now life's gotten in the way. So I'm wondering like, what's like the reacclimation, re-releasing them into the wild in, in such a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, there's a lot of parallels where, as you guys know, um, unfortunately we, you're not going to reach them all. You know, I, you, you have to at least have people that are captive and, and engaged enough that, that want to, you know, embark on that and, and commit some reasonable time in, in order to prepare, right? Like, um, I, I'm, I'm not a miracle worker, like I'm sure uh, you guys, you guys know. And, and so I think if you can get people to um, understand a little bit more, right, which is, giving them some of that information that we talked about, right? Like this, if they don't know, it's, hey, here's, here's what you can expect, right? Like on, on an average, right? Like if, if you know where maybe they're targeting to go, being able to look at that area and say, well, this is what the terrain looks like. Um, this is more than likely what you're gonna probably need to uh, expect to cover, you know, on, a, on an average daily basis, um, looking at where they're coming from. And, you know, I'll give you an example I have, a guy who drew uh, about a 15 year uh, tag in New Mexico this year, but lived in Florida. And he's like, this is the, the hunt I've been waiting for, for a decade and a half. And um, so I kind of started putting him on the path and, and it wasn't that he didn't understand like, oh, I have no clue what I'm getting myself into, but it was more of me asking the right questions to figure out like, where are you going? Um, look at what the average altitude is at that space. Understand that there's no way he can replicate that altitude in Florida of all places. It's a little right. Flat. 
it's a, it's a little flat, right? I'm like, do you have anything that resembles a hill? He's like, eh, kind of, you know? And so it, it started from, you know, very general based stuff and then gradually ramping him up to the point of getting him to build out that kind of window of what his resiliency looked like from, you know, a strength perspective from uh, an endurance perspective and then obviously cardiovascularly and trying to, to utilize that as a way to you know slowly introduce him into this is what it's going to feel like on a day-to-day -day basis and increasing his volume and increasing his frequency and things like that as he got closer and closer to it because you know at that point he was going to be pretty much all in so um i, I think that the more more times than not when I can ask the right questions to kind of figure out like what's your goal here what what are you expecting what do you know and it, maybe they know nothing right I mean I see all the time like we're parts of all different types of forums and things like that and you see people all the time like hey I'm targeting my first elk hunt two years from now can I have some help you know and and that's great. I mean, you get a lot of those people. And so I think the more that we can provide them with kind of the expectation and what they're going to be kind of up against, so to speak, and then backfill that with saying, well, here's a good starting point for you and then try to get them to, you know, buy into it. I mean, I think that that's, that's always been how I kind of approach it. Um, and, you know, it's some, some people it's more fine tuning and other people it's, you know, basically throwing them into the deep end of the pool. So you just never, you never know. Everybody's different. Well, um, so like if, uh, if somebody comes to you and they do have, let's say, you know, two years from an elk, like where do you start? Is it with like, Hey, uh, like here's the baseline. We need to get some wearables and then kind of the basic kind of Milo's bowl where, you know, you're going to pick something up uh, small and as over the course of the two years, it's going to increase in intensity and hopefully periodize you for that exact moment and try to replicate it as much as we can, you know, one to two days a week. And then kind of as you get closer to it, kind of add a little bit more. Yeah, I think I mean, if you had if you had that much time, I mean, the world's your oyster. I mean, at that point, it's like obviously, you know, strength and those types of things. You look at that from a very longitudinal process. Right. But I always say that from the, the conditioning or the metabolic side of things, I mean, that's a relatively short window. And so if you have that much time, it's building general into gradually getting to be more specific. And, and so, you know, if you actually had someone that was willing to vest that much time, I think that, you know, you can get a lot accomplished. You can have them, you know, hundred percent prepared. I typically try and tell people that, you know, if they come in with any, you know, training status whatsoever that, you know, about a 12 to 16 week period is typically what I look at as saying, now we've got to really narrow it down. Right. And so I think if you had that much time, you're going to work at getting them stronger. You're going to do basic stuff. You're going to do, you know, multi-dimensional and multi-directional stuff. I think that that's the big thing that I see a lot when I get people that come to me is, uh, and I think it's true in, in sport and in, in everywhere else where so much of our our training and what people do on a day-to-day -day basis unless otherwise tasked with it is most of their workouts exist in a hallway being sagittal plane. And, you know, I'm a huge believer that, you know, we have to teach people to move in, in all directions and, and be much more uh, angular and frontal plane and transverse plane and, and try to add layers to that so that when they start to get down to being more specific, that they're much more capable of handling things without falling apart. And that to me is the biggest factor in, in any training. I mean, you know, to me, I think that's, 
the thing that I see a lot of, and I think a lot of us, including myself, have, you know, probably fallen victim to in the course of our careers is, you know, being too one-dimensional sometimes, and we get really myopic a lot of times in how we approach and, and design training programs. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's difficult. It's so easy just to do nothing but bilateral hip hinging in a sagittal plane. And, right. um, you know, it's for simple. Time. For, for time. And emotional intensity. <laughs> Joel, have you ever had a client, have you ever had a client like reach out and say thank you because they out on the hunt or out on the venture, like something life threatening happened to them. And they're like, man, I'm glad I called that guy. <laughs> I, I haven't had any of those where they're like, holy crap, you saved my life. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have had folks that were like, man, that, that helped a ton. You know, I, I felt great. Um, it really enhanced my ability, you know, when I got to day four and five and six and things like that. And, you know, I never felt like I couldn't continue to cover ground and stuff like that. I think to me, that's, that's probably the best, um, you know, compliment is to know that, you know, when they got deeper into a hunt, if they haven't filled a tag and that they're able to still get up every morning and get out and, put miles on and, and still feel capable. You know, I think that that's, that's the biggest thing is, um, you know, if you wear down as the week goes on, you know, the elk don't move closer to you, the more you're out there, they, <laughs> odds are you're going to have to work harder. So, um, yeah, hopefully I don't ever have anybody that gets into those situations, but it happens, you know, I mean, we've seen, you know, instances where, you know, I know just recently a guy, you know, had an arrow drop out of his quiver and he ended up literally, you know, wedging and, and, you know, basically impaling himself through, through his calf. And like, oh, that can be a really scary situation. And, and, you know, I think those are the things a lot of times they get overlooked too. And, you know, we try to prepare for those things as much as possible. I mean, having some of that knowledge is, is super, super important, right? I mean, we bring stuff with us like, you know, Sam splint and, and I bring a tourniquet and, and, you know, quick clod and zip stitch and those types of things, because you just never know. I mean, you're, you're out there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we were nine miles and, you know, from the nearest place of, or even vehicle, you know, from where we're at, something goes wrong out there. You better have some resources or at least some basic ability to, to figure out how to uh, keep yourself out of harm's way. So what do you like for boots? I'm always fascinated by uh, people's boot selection because feet are um, so, so different. And, uh, I remember, uh, actually I was talking with Bert about this and he was going through, you know, every pair of boot, uh, it's kind of yeah. like a concealed gun holsters almost yeah, yeah. like asking anybody that keeps carries concealed. They got a, a bag full of holsters that they fucking hate. Uh, yeah. same thing with boots. I mean, it feels like, uh, if you can find a boot that fits your foot that you can effectively wear and like you say, create calluses so that you can go far. It feels like, uh, that to me is probably if you can keep your feet pretty healthy, you probably have a good chance of being surviving. At least that's what I know from my own experiences. hundred percent. I mean, I, I have a little bit of a unique kind of condition with, with that. It took me probably 10 years to actually find a boot that, that really realistically worked for me. Um, a friend of mine, uh, him and uh, his partner own top priority hunting out of Idaho and uh, they're sponsored by crispy. And he was at our facility and, and he had a pair on one day and I'm like, Hey man, like, are these things all what they're cracked up to be? Cause I was seeing them everywhere and everyone's ranting and raving. He's like, I promise you, he's like, they're worth every dime. And, um, and so I, I ended up buying a pair of Laponias, crispy Laponias. And that year put about 60 miles on and when I say unique circumstance, I had, when I was younger, I'd actually broke 
um, kind of the, the proximal um, joint on my big toe, one of my big toes. And um, smat, I had a window smash it. And so now it's getting to where it's pretty cranky and it doesn't like being moved around. And, and my, my range on it is, is actually pretty limited compared to my, my other one. And so when you get into contouring and uphilling and downhilling and stuff like that, you know, in the past, I went through two, three, four different pairs of boots and I'd get two, three, four days into a hunt. And I would almost have to take a morning off because it would just be so flared up and pissed off and, and painful. And once I moved to that boot, it, it was the first time where I hunted all week long and actually kind of like dawned on me one day, I'm like, my toe actually feels fine. And so, you know, for me, that was like, you got me. Uh, I'm in for, you know, for as long as you can take my money, that's, that's my go-to. But I do know some other guys that are big on, you know, like Zamberlin's. I know some other guys that really love Kenetrex. Um, you know, there's a uh, Loa's and, you know, I think there's a lot of really good options out there, but for me, for archery, I, that Laponia boot not only serves as, as the first boot that, that I've been able to put miles on. And I probably have three, 400 miles on those boots now. And they're, they're still as good as new, as far as, you know, they haven't broke down. They're a little bit stiffer in the toe box, which I think is what helps for me getting a lot of that kind of like extension, um, and, you know, I, I think that that's the biggest thing as well as the fact that they're super, super light. And to me, you know, if you're going to put on a lot of miles, you sure the heck don't want a heavy boot. And, um, you know, so that that's where kind of like all of those few factors have led me to, you know, being a big believer in them. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other good ones. Is, is there a set number of miles that you recommend putting into boots? So one of our training programs, Hammer, that we push. Uh, military, fire, LEO, and hunters towards builds in rucks into the programming. Like, right. Is there an opportunity of how much miles can somebody put on their boots to realize, hey, yay or nay? Yeah, I, I would say that depending upon ability to get into terrain and things like that, um, you know, what you're going to actually utilize them for, um, I think you got to probably at least get, you know, five to 10 miles in to really give yourself a good idea, especially, you know, again, contouring and some things like that, if that's what you're going to going to expect to be doing to figure out whether or not that boot's probably going to work for you. Just, just from the standpoint of fit uh, in terms of, you know, how is it, what the sole is like? Um, how is it in terms of, you know, what the toe box is like, you know, do you like it to be, you know, does it, are you a flat footed high arch person, whatever, you know, and just go through that process. I think if you just wear them around the house for a couple of days and you're like, Oh yeah, these feel great. Um, yeah. You, you're probably going to find out it's going to take you a few iterations before you figure out what actually works for you. So um, I, you know, I don't have a, I, you know, perfect number or a dialed in number, but I think if you, you'd have to at least give yourself five to 10 miles before you're going to know whether or not that boot number one breaks into kind of where you think it's it's actually starting to fit and you know how shoe kind of works and you know with your foot um and then is it going to not create hot spots is it you know not creating pain whether that's heel pain midfoot you know toe whatever that might be uh and go from there any more hunting i want to switch gears a little bit well, fast performance. I'm, I'm curious, man, you were a coach at Denver. Did, is that 
opportunity to coach at University of Denver, what brought you to the area? Yes. That, that was, uh, that was my, my gateway to Denver after grad school. And then what was the motivation? Like, Hey, I'm done with college. I'm going to open up my own performance facility. Well, um, there was a couple other steps that existed in there. Um, I, I came to university of Denver, uh, one of my mentors, Mike Sanders, who's now with seventh group in, in uh, Thor three down in, in Eglin. Uh, he became the head coach at the university of Denver and, asked me to apply like the timing of it was was crazy i finished grad school uh, i went through the entire interview process still the craziest interview process i've ever been through i had eight phone interviews and eight in-person interviews when i came to denver um managed to con all of them into hiring me which uh which worked out and i spent a little over seven years there and and kind of at that time it was one of those things where uh, mark stevenson who i know you know um was just beginning kind of the early phases of, of the TSAC kind of program. And him and Mike were, were really good friends. And um, I actually got a, a cold call from Jay Dawes and, and at that time, Peter Melanson. Um, and they were looking to replace, um, oh man, his name is, is completely uh, evading me right now. Uh, someone in the education department at the NSCA. And you know, for me, it was one of those things where I'd been in a college setting for, you know, close to 10 years at that point. I'd spent two years at the University of Nebraska Kearney before that. And if you've been in those situations and, you know, what I would consider to be that was a non-football school, very high level. I mean, you know, we were very successful with a lot of our, our programs there. And um, but a lot of the lot of those schools get to a point where they realize that you've been capped out in, in terms of how much they want to pay you and i had reached that point where i was either going to need to move on somewhere um or wait for mike to move on and um you know this opportunity came to me through the nsca and and it was one of those where i'd kind of done the a little bit of the pros and cons and i'm like well i've been working on average 50 to 60 hours a week for the last 10 years with no holidays being sacred and everything else and i can go work at the nsca uh, work normal hours uh, expand my network get paid more and uh, so i was like yeah that sounds pretty good and so i did that <laughs> uh, so that that's why I, I moved from there and then um kind of concurrently in there is where i actually started my job with the mammoth um with the the colorado mammoth of the the nll as you mentioned uh i had had some guys that were starting to kind of move on and play professionally within our lacrosse program at du and, and the previous strength coach had left and somehow my name got thrown into that hat and i was fortunate enough that that job at that time was really seasonal uh didn't require travel anything like that and the players could come uh down to du that were in town and train with me kind of after hours type thing and and so it was like ah, hey, i can make a couple extra bucks i'll start doing that and when i went to the nsca i was able to maintain that concurrently and as you know kind of my time there i got to a point where i was ready to move again um i kind of went back to the organization and said hey you know i need some time to kind of figure some things out and and if you they kept wanting me to have a bigger role and so i kind of put it back on them and said well then you got to pay me more like there's just all there is to it you know and that was kind of my transition more into the private sector which was i utilized that next season which 
when I left the NSCA, the, the mammoth season was just starting. And then I began actually traveling with the team and uh, taking a much bigger role there. And so from there, that was where I'm like, okay, well, when the season's over, I'm going to figure out what the hell I'm going to do because I don't have a pot to piss in at this point when the season's over. And that was kind of the start of that. And, and it's, that's been seven, eight, well, it's like closer to eight or nine years now of, of working through that where I was kind of, you know, renting space at a private gym and, you know, and then moving, moving and moving and moving until um, I got approached uh, by Peter Schaefer, who's a sports agent. And he wanted me to essentially run a facility for him. Um, and that kind of kickstarted where, where we are today. And my business partner now, uh, him and I kind of merged our two businesses. And then I pulled a, a, another colleague of mine, John Cole in, uh, to create what is now fast performance. And he was at, uh, ski and snowboard club Vale for like 25 years. And so it's, uh, we moved in here. We're, we're just coming up on three years in this facility. And, and so it's been, it's been a lot of uh, trial and error and, and, uh, we screw it up a lot, but we're, uh, I don't know, the doors are still open and I think the bills are paid. So, you know, we're, we're continuing <laughs> on as well as we can. <laughs> yeah. Who makes up the majority of your clientele? Is it teens training for performance? You got pros coming in there for combine group classes. Yeah, yeah we've we've done. Uh, I've done probably four or five combine classes. Um, I, I don't work quite as closely as I used to with agents. Um, you know, I, I had a huge desire for that uh, years ago, and and um, you know. It's a, it's a fun process, the combine process, but at the same time, it's exhaustive. Um, you know, talking about working 60 hours in a college setting, my combine season typically was as the mammoth season started as well. And, and my 50 to 60 turned into 80 to 90 during the first like two and a half, three months of the year. And um, so as much as I enjoyed it, I, I don't have a lot of emphasis there. I mean, we still obviously get um, some pro guys in here, a part of our business, a big part of our business is our baseball side that, uh, Jason Hirsch runs. He's a former big leaguer. He's a second round pick from the Astros. Um, and we have every bit of tech that major league baseball has, you know, in our facility in terms of pitching and hitting and analytics and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I played college baseball and it's like far surpassed my understanding. Um, <laughs> But so so we get a lot of baseball clientele in here. And then obviously our lacrosse um, is is also a pretty big influence. But, you know, I've, I've got soccer players in here right now. I've got, you know, a guy that's actually just getting ready to um, he's taking his uh, his uh, PT test this week. He's going to want to become a combat controller. So, you know, we, we've got a little bit of everything. And we're, uh, you know, as you guys know, when you're in this space, like I don't turn down a whole lot of people if they're willing to come in and uh, you know, embark on our services and, and put in the work. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, um, I try to explain it to somebody, uh, we're into training or building projects. You know, if somebody comes to me with a specific need and I can fill that need, it doesn't matter how they're porting it out. And it's more about like helping them on their journey and, you know, fixing things and finding people For within sure. the expertise. So I think people get stuck in these veins and I'm like, uh, I'm more into training athletes. And if there's something unique that you need that I fit for that service, then shit, man, we go hundred miles an hour at it. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite clients right now that I work with, not, I'm not like, not that I have clients I hate or anything right now. Or oh, just, be as honest. Far, as, far, as far as they know. Yeah. Um, and they don't listen uh, to this podcast. 
Yeah, they'll, they'll never listen to this. Um, at the end of uh, just here a couple of months ago, I started working with uh, a retired NFL guy and um, met him through uh, Jesse Erlinger, who owns Breath Belt. And uh, they were buddies. They both played at Miami. And he's like, hey, man, um, he's like, you training like old broken down guys? And I'm like, yeah, sure, dude. And, you know, he's trying to ward off an, uh, his second knee replacement and like, man, working with him is awesome. You know, obviously. Who's this? Because uh, I know Jesse. Um, oh, do you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm an old broken down NFL player. I mean, that's what I did for, nice. for 10 years of yeah. my life. Uh, Casey Jones. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, played for the Broncos. He was on their two Super Bowl teams with Elway. Yeah. Um, just a great dude. A uh, lot of fun. And, and um, you know, we've we've got him back to a healthier point. And like he's one of those guys like every day you show up, you're like, this can be, be this can be a good hour. You know? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No, I, I remember he uh, he played. In, uh, was he uh, he was offensive lineman, though, right? Yeah, he was a center. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. OK. East. Yeah. Played he, with like Ray Lewis and The Rock and all those guys like. Those are some fun. Those, those are some offline stories I, I, I would love we, we, we can share. <laughs> I asked him, I said, hey, man, you know that uh, 30 for 30 or whatever it was about the you? I'm like, how true is that? And he's like, what parts? <laughs> uh, well, he he would have been uh, he would have played at the Broncos when like Mark Schlereth and some of those guys were there. So Dave Diaz. Yeah. Had fun. So when I was a, a, a young rookie um, uh, playing for the Eagles, I came in. My, I got drafted in 99. Uh, you know, we were yeah, super young. Right around the same time. Yeah, so we were super young, and they brought in all these old bets, and one of them was Dave Diaz Infante, who had played uh, for the Broncos, and Dave was kind of like the old, you know, now I laugh at him, he's only in his 30s. I thought he might have been like 400 years old, and now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like, fuck Dave. <laughs> Fucking Diaz. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, like, uh, you know, as a young guy going to the Super Bowl, uh, we'd go down there and hang out with Mark Schlereth, and those dudes were uh, was really cool because I had seen those guys play as a kid. And like, as I was yeah. kind of up in college, like seeing them play. So it was always neat to like get a chance to hang out with those guys, especially as a young guy. And now that I'm old, I'm like, oh yeah. K Casey Jones, he's from Midland. Ooh. So that's the Friday Night Lights movie yeah. based in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's uh, if you, if you go to, um, we had him and Jesse, Jesse was in town. We actually had him on our podcast and, um, there's a, there's a really amazing story where he tells, uh, on the podcast, how he became the captain at the University of Miami, and uh, it involves Ray Lewis, which is just—it's oh. an absolutely talk about a teaser. Was the only one who didn't have uh, was in the probably like the felony court system. So they're like, "Hey, he doesn't have a felony coming up, so we'll make him the head captain." No, <laughs> it, 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 it involved it, basically the gist of it is that him—they would line him and Ray up day after day because the coaches just love seeing him and Casey go at it. And uh, was it in a dance competition? Were, so like with Ray's uh, dancing. No. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So dude, and, when, uh, when we would go down and play Baltimore, I fucking hated playing down at Baltimore. Cause I like, it took 20 minutes to start the game. Why they let Ray Lewis do a stupid fucking dance to the point where oh, like, yeah. I used to yeah, talk yeah. so much shit to him and be like, what are you going to fucking dance the entire time? And uh, dude, but they loved it, man. That I mean, dude, you guys remember that dance? Oh yeah. The fucking first of all, yeah, like the way it works in the NFL is uh, every other game it switches who gets uh, right. into, you know gets to get their names called out. So the uh, on away games they always introduce the offense at home. It was always the defense, so, so Ray could do his dance. And we were like, I, I've seen it live. Out. I went to Baltimore Texans playoffs 2012, and I sat right there. Yeah, and you're like. Well, they got their asses kicked, but 
Um, damn. <laughs> just yeah. It's cool. Uh, it, it's it's actually it's an awesome story. Basically, the gist of it is that Casey sees Ray in a scrimmage, like coming down the line, and Ray sees and Casey sees him out of the corner of his eye, and he doesn't think Ray knows that you know he's expecting him and ray's gonna try and clean him out and casey turns right as he approaches him and just hammers him and in one fell swoop grabs ray's face mask and rips it completely off his helmet mm. yeah uh, and he goes you, i love he goes, you want to see a guy you want to see a guy immediately go just completely like oh shit what do i do now and he goes, Ray goes storming off. He's just irate. And then Casey has like a cousin that was an athletic trainer on the team. And he, you know, gets done. That's about, you know, back when the guys just banged every day, right? Like, yeah. you know, like practice oh, yeah. and stuff. So I'm sitting in my locker and, and he's like, I'm dog tired. And my cousin comes over. He's like, bro, Ray's going to kill you. Like, he's so fucking mad. <laughs> and, and he's like, he goes, you know, like when a room just kind of goes silent and there's this uneasiness, he's like, I could tell Ray's, Ray had just walked in. I'm like, oh, here we go. And Ray walks over and he's like, well, let's, let's get it over with. He stands up and Ray holds out his hand and says, hey, man, I'm sorry. I won't ever let that happen again. Mm. And he goes, that's how I became the captain of Miami. Nice. <laughs> nice. No, I, I, uh... it, was, it, was him, it was him or Ray. <laughs> uh i do the you're gonna laugh at this but i always enjoyed playing against ray lewis and the reason being yeah. is uh ray was always looking for a highlight film so his and the way he yeah. made his bones and the way he made his money was putting those two big fat uh you know offense or d linemen in front of him like saragusa god rest his soul uh and then what he would yeah. do is he would stay real tight and he knew that those dudes were going to take up two dudes and then he would scrape off because he always wanted to hit against a linebacker or a fullback or whatnot sure. uh, we went down sure. in uh preseason and they were they actually came out in the 34 defense and it was the first time i'd like i was playing left guard i got down in my stance and i could see ray i was looking right at him like eye to eye and i'm like they must be fucking misaligned i've never in my life been able to look at this dude because he was always cheating behind those big dudes and we came off yeah. ran his zone and i got actually my first chance to one-on-one -on -one hit him because uh, he had to legitimately try to two gap me so he couldn't pick a side and uh got a nice right. hit on him tea kettled him and uh, he was fucking going crazy. They never came out in that third three four again. So, uh, but uh, I mean, he he loved hitting against backs. I mean, he even told me one time he was like, "I ain't trying to fucking hit you. I'm trying to hit those little dudes so I can make a highlight film." And I was like, "I respect yeah. that." I mean, yeah. he, he knew it, and uh, he For was sure. the master of. Oh yeah, but he was also the master of like you know, uh, mic me up. I'm gonna say some crazy shit. I mean, he played the game the way it should have been played, and I appreciate that. About yeah, him. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's good though. I'm I'm glad that you're taking on projects and fixing old broken offensive linemen. It's uh it's it's a much yeah. needed deal. I'll take I'll take them all. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. No, I mean it's uh yeah. We we met Jesse from Beth Breath Belt actually at Sornex. And uh, he yeah. was like came over and talked about uh, you know his breath belt and it was wild because um, yes. the first time I put it on I knew exactly what he was trying to do I mean it's something that we teach with our dead bug and a lot of our movement stuff of keeping this you right. know compressed kind of hollowed out pull your top rib down and I thought it was so ingenious that he created a belt that was actually showing people the position that we had been fighting to teach people so now I know for my wife. Okay. Um, so my wife, uh, we, we live next door to a riding school. And so my wife trains a bunch of the girls and moms that ride. And, uh, the first thing she does is put them in a breath belt to try to teach them that position. Cause she said that she can actually, when she puts the breath belt on and like gets them into the right position, 
She's like, this is how I want you to stay all the time. It's night and day different to the point where some of the ladies, I think she bought like 10 of them and a bunch of ladies ride horses with them with it on. Mm -hmm. And so they can hold their position better. So, I mean, Jesse's done some amazing stuff. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, it's, it's become something that, I mean, I, I use almost daily, you know, where even at times when I'm I'm at my desk or even now it's like, I'm sitting down here and even just talking about this. I'm like, as soon as I get done, I'm probably going to go throw it on when my next session starts. And it's just, it's just a great tool that, you know, I think he's, he's just scratching the surface and, you know, and I talked to Jesse quite a bit. In fact, I got to call him this week, but um, you know, it, it, all the right intentions and and just a, a great simple tool that, you know, has so many uses. So, yeah. Well, uh, McCulkin's wearing a set of Spanx right now. So he, he likes to wear Spanx around. Breath Spanx. Similar. Similar. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's the, the evolution of the breath belt. It's just it's, full Spanx. It's just full Spanx. Uh-huh. Oh, dude. Cool. I, I do. Yeah. Make uh, sure. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll call Jesse about that one later this week. Uh, dude, uh, some guy tagged me in something. Uh, so we have, um, uh, within our power athlete ecosystem, a bunch of our block one coaches like constantly tag me and shit. And somebody tagged me, I think it might've been T- Tyson Shumway. And these people were actually selling like a shirt. And I think it was like shorts for you to like, effectively they were men's Spanx. Where like, you know, you basically was like hoist your gut into it and it pulls it in and then you pull this shirt down and kind of attach it. Yeah. And, uh, he's like, uh, like, what do you think? Sorry, oh, dude, I, I, he, like, he tagged me in it. Like, Hey, uh, did, you know, is there a training application towards this? And my comment is like, no, those people need training so that this isn't how they fucking, you know, get up in the morning. Like, Oh, instead of getting in better shape, I'm just going to Kim Kardashian, this fucking sausage case. It's a, it's a bro set, like a core set for bros. Dude, it looks so uncomfortable. It, well, it hurts to be beautiful. Quoting Mel Hinsman. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, Go to trainheroic.co forward slash power athlete HQ. And now back to the show. So as a, as, as a, per- <laughs> it's true. That's, Mel did say that uh, as somebody who wore white spandex uh, almost every day of their life for almost 20 years, I can tell you that basically being stuffed into a sausage casing on Sundays, like there is no part of that I want today to the point where like, if something's like overly fitted, I'm like, I'm good. I'm not going to wear this. No, nah. no. Nah. Like compression shorts, wow. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to wear them. Like, uh, like any type of spandex shirt, I'm like, nope, I'm not going to wear it. Wranglers, count me in. Oh, yeah, like like super tight jeans. I got to have jeans with spandex. If the jeans are too tight, I'm like, whoo, these are too tight. I can't wear these. My wife's like, didn't you wear tight clothes? I'm like, yeah, but I didn't like any bit of it. Glutes got to pop. Well, Joel. Yeah, fashion. Yeah, fast performance. What's cool is you host a lot of educational seminars, experiences, different groups, uh, and a CA for the TSAC and Kaiser's coming into your location, which is pretty awesome. That That's unique. So we've had the opportunity to travel the world and visit a lot of gyms and speak with a lot of gym owners. And they're sometimes very protective of their ecosystem and their athletes and their environment. What motivates you to bring these experts in to, to teach at your facility? Because um, they're all smarter than me. <laughs> Easy enough. <laughs> um, 
I mean, that's that's somewhat in, in a lot of ways true. I mean, I, I we we're very fortunate. Like our, our facility is uh, twelve thousand square feet, um, which obviously there's bigger facilities and and there's smaller facilities. But in terms of just the layout of our space, you know, as you, as I mentioned, you know, kind of being in our room here, um, you know, we built out this room as far as podcasts, like you guys obviously have as well. You want up me, but we'll let that go. Um, well, we could, you then, know, like I'll send you the recipe for hammers. If you want to put a bunch of hammers on the back wall, I mean, you got I know, the wood. I could use a couple of those at the house for sure. I got a lot of projects, <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, we have a metabolic lab that, um, again, JC works a lot on our strategic partnerships. So, you know, we've got Watt Bike in there. We've got um, the core um, temperature uh, sensor. We've been working with those guys out of Europe. Um, we've been using uh, training roads, training peaks, all that kind of stuff as far as some of the tech there, BioStrap. And so we've got a lot of capability from there. Obviously, um, you know, the training space, I always say, you know, people walk in like, oh, yeah, you're, you're training space is like it's super nice and everything i'm like it's a weight room you know like <laughs> the goal of the weight room is to be functional whatever you know yeah sure we want it to look nice we want it to look inviting and you know we want to sell it to people but that's that's probably the least sexy as far as as a lot of those things go we're lucky that we have um a massage therapist on staff we have a sports psychologist on staff and then we also built out an actual, um, we have a space in our, our facility that will hold about 30 to 40 people that we built out strictly as an educational uh, conference room for doing seminar work and, and things like that, which um, for us, it's just, we've always felt JC is, is huge on the educational side as well as, as I've always been that if we can create a place that, you know, is, is a hub, is a, a source, is something where, you know, we can spread, share, and, and uh, produce opportunities for people to learn, for people to network. Um, we're getting ready to, to come up on our, our Mountain Con event that JC brought down from uh, Vail. That's a super unique event where we're bringing folks in from all over the place that are involved in, in high altitude and alpine sports and, and things like that that are kind of specialized into that environment and we've added things like when uh the first two years that that jc held that event uh, it included mountain biking and kayaking and actually stand-up paddle boarding and things like that where you know just to come in and sit in front of a, a screen for a couple of days you know i think that those days are maybe long long gone as far as being dry and boring and whatever and so we've just kind of we're trying to create more of an enriched environment where people not only get to meet other people, but, you know, create experiences that are expanded beyond, you know, literature and, and just spewing out a bunch of PowerPoints over a couple of days. And so that's kind of where our, our genesis of, of a lot of that stuff comes from. And, you know, to me, I always look at those things as opportunities to, you know, expand my knowledge base, to learn from other people, um, to get more people that come through our doors and, and hopefully at some some point um it benefits not only us as a business but you know a lot of other people and that we can be uh, a place where people will look to or, or at least resource for for stuff that you know i've always said i've never invented anything in this industry and and you know i kind of chuckle a little bit about you know guys that create as you've kind of talked about and mentioned and we've talked about here that you know have this like oh this is our system and whatever else and i'm like 
Yeah, you know what? It's still moving weight in a lot of different ways in a lot of different directions. And if you want to call it that, that's fine. But you know, I and maybe I'm just a poor marketer, which obviously I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, it's nothing for me to share anything that I do with anyone. And if it helps somebody, then that's great. Yeah. Now we always um, like, oh, you lift weights too? Yeah. And like you, you do some hard stuff. You do a little bit. I mean, like it's like whenever, like um, unless it's completely off the wall, like. Uh, like who is uh, Archuleta's dude in uh, in Arizona? Oh yeah, uh, um, yeah. God, I'm fucking blanking on his name. Um, Throw yeah. barbells. Was it Schrader? Yeah, Jay Schrader, where you're you know hooking people up to a machine that you built in your garage, and you're doing fucking ballistic weight drops on a machine you built off of like ten stories down to try to kill him. I mean, like, like, yeah. did, like I, I'm I, good I, on that. I talked to Jay on the phone, and he got into like a little bit of their tech and like you know the machines he was designing in his garage in terms of like the uh, uh, it wasn't EMF or uh, EMS, but they were other kind of like yeah. I mean, it was uh, like. <laughs> And what's wild is uh, like the stuff was so off the wall and it was so proprietary that like, uh, even That's if the key, even if he told me everything, I couldn't go replicate it. Cause uh, one, I don't have the electrical engineering background to build his technology and I'm not going to take the time to like to develop schematics. So, I mean like, and even, you know, like e- even if the guy gave me a recipe, like I'd, I'd be like, here it is, go, go do it. So, I mean, like even with that stuff, like super guarded and I, uh, that's a good move though. Over explain it to the point where even you're confused, they can't replicate it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, like, like common principles, like we talk about compensatory acceleration, you know, that one discussion I had when I was 14 years old, I believe was one of the foundations for why I was able to play a decade in the NFL, you know, as mechanical advantage increases, so to speed like that. I mean, Fred Hatfield, I mean, he's like the amount of people when we discuss that with people, they, uh, I've like have never heard about it. And I, I just so happened the old power lifter yeah. that trained me with buddies with Fred Hatfield. And he talked right. about, you know, try to break the weights, try to move these motherfuckers as fast as possible. So when you go out there on, you know, in the game, this is the way you've trained. This is effectively how you'll play. And like that little piece, yeah. uh, you know, was huge for me. Um, you know, uh, like Char- uh, Charlie Francis's uh, med ball stuff for not only, you know, yep. uh, adductors and trunk and throws and, you know, I mean, all that stuff was so fundamental. I mean, there are these pieces and I, I talk about it constantly. Like these are the things that, that helped me play a decade and we use with our athletes, whether or not people choose yeah. to replicate them or not, that's upon them to, to go and learn it from the source. Yeah. We, we have, we have a 17 foot banner in our facility that says train fast, be fast. And, you know, that's kind of a big Kaiser piece and, you know, the Kaiser has been awesome for us. Not that I'm, you know, tooting their horn or anything. We obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways you can skin a cat in terms of the training world, but you know, the microcosm of that is that, you know, I grew up in, as, as I mentioned in Nebraska, right. It was like bigger, faster, stronger, yeah. you know, it was, it was the old school Boyd, Boyd Epley, yeah. you know, where it was squat bench, clean deadlift, you know, and, and that was what was ingrained into me as a, you know, college athlete, as a high school athlete and stuff like that. And, you know, over time, there was this like dawning realization in me, like when I was working with college football players and I'm like, huh, um, why does the dude that, you know, led the team in squat max sitting on the bench on Saturdays, like this doesn't make any freaking sense, you know? And, and, and to me, it was like, those were the things where I go, so lifting more weights is cool, but it doesn't always apply. And, you know, and so I like, that's where I think some of those things for me started to really make sense where I'm like, we have to have 
an accepted relative amount of strength based on, you know, whatever the given need is, but there's very few places outside of just lifting heavy weights in order to accomplish a task to lift the most weight where there isn't a speed component or a velocity component or something like that. That's associated with being successful at a given task within the sport realm. Uh, when I trained with Verstegen at athletes performance, so I lived in Newport and I drive up to Carson, uh, we would yeah. use the Kaiser runner and there was a, like a power wattage. I remember there was a, some form of wattage meter we had. And I, th I think it was yep. like a 30 or 60 second sprint intervals we would do. And I remember, ah, God, I'm going to totally mess his name up. Uh, the one guy who was kind of my dude that trained with me was a guy named Basso. Um, and then there was another, and I, I can't remember their names. But I remember uh, we would go bang weights and we'd squat heavy. Um, and as I got stronger, we kept going back to the Kaiser runner to see if the power that I developed within the, the time periods was constant, increased or decreased. And I remember mm -hmm. like uh, I was pretty fortunate as I got stronger, the power increased, whereas other people would get stronger and their power ended up decreasing. And I remember they were scratching their heads and I'm like, well, uh, if they're moving, you know, if the accentuation phase is slower and they're effectively not moving as violently as they could, it's going to translate. You know, we saw that in super training with, uh, you know, what was it? A 200 kilo bench for the throwers was optimal for a, you know, 16 pound shot, whereas a 220 kilo bench ended up slowing them down and reducing the velocity on the ball. And uh, right. I mean, just some yeah. basic stuff like that. If you can effectively continue to be dynamic and strong with load, um, you know, it'll show up in other ways. And I really, I actually really enjoyed that Kaiser runner of all the Kaiser shit we used. Uh, that one yeah. is by far Love my favorite. It. And then when we were fortunate to go out and work with the guys at development group, their new facility, they, uh, had a string of those things. And I was like, fuck yes, let's go use these. But none of them were bolted down. Oh yeah. Cause nobody had been using them. So all of a sudden <laughs> I get the guys in them and they start fucking going and they're smashing into the walls of the office yeah. to the point where I had like everybody standing on a corner trying to, you know, Hey, like, let's do some, uh, like just basic power output. And then we're going to go do a bunch of training. Um, you know, we're going to see if we can get you into good trunk position. And once you maintain that trunk position, can you generate more force and trying to just do a little test and retest. And uh, our limiting factor was the fact that they weren't fucking bolted down and nobody had used it. So nobody had, had fucking yeah. figured out that you need to bolt those motherfuckers. They'll go shooting through the wall. Yeah, that, that's a word to the wise there. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I mean, they're overly complicated. They're super expensive. I remember the, uh, uh, the valves would blow, but when they worked, man, that was a fucking great, uh, a great tool. I always really enjoyed them. I've yeah. seen them pop up I for mean, sale periodically on like, uh, you know, I'll see them pop up in like different ways online or different like sales, but you got to have the the tech for the air. I mean, there's a lot of components going into them, but man, that was a great piece. Yeah. We, you know, obviously we have standard weight room equipment, you know, I think for us, it was like the greatest hits piece with that, you know, for me with the amount of hockey, baseball, lacrosse, stuff like that, that, that I deal with golf, even, um, you know, the functional trainer for me is like, that was the non-negotiable, you know, like I, I had to have that piece from a cable perspective, just because of the way that we can work in, in transverse plane and, and be able to accelerate at, you know, effort with that, uh, based on that pneumatic piece. Uh, and then like we have, two of their racks and then we have um their squat machine as well and the runner is one that like i'm working on right now to try because that's like my my last kind of like ideal piece and then we want to add their uh their leg press from uh, the 
unilateral piece uh, that we want to put into our lab because JC's done a ton of that stuff with his uh, Alpine skiers, you know, the Lindsey Vaughns and Michaela Schifferns of the world and stuff like that over the years to be able to utilize that um, from uh, lower body output and power outputs. Uh, and, you know, outside of that, it's like, we still use dumbbells. We still use barbells. We see, you know, just everything else that, you know, a standard weight room has, but that small capability of being able to look at reps. And as you mentioned, right, like I think the objective and subjective piece of that's been probably the best part for me where when, when I have an athlete, you know, say we're doing explosive chops or something like that, you know, being able to sit there and go like, Oh, that one was better. And they're like, Oh, how? Right. And now I can look back at that actual information that's being given to me and go, uh, that one was 90% of your last rep. This one was hundred percent, you know, and that creates a better environment in terms of training that I've noticed a big time with, with a lot of our athletes is now they can look at it and go like, Oh yeah, that was faster rather than just like taking my word for it. You know, I think that that's been a nice addition, uh, to that piece for us. So, yeah. No, I, I always appreciate that equipment. Uh, I have uh, one, like there's certain pieces of equipment that uh, I've coveted over the years. One of them is like a hammer uh, ISO incline. Uh, and then the other one is uh, hammers uh, kind of seated leg press, unilateral leg press. Uh, those two pieces of equipment uh, for where all the places I've trained have always been extremely beneficial for me. So we actually have them here and there's a few others I'm always on the hunt for. You just don't, they don't pop yeah. up as much as they used to. Well, with uh, with the the downslope of COVID and how much uh, equipment got bought for home gyms and stuff like that uh, recently, like keep your eye out because people are offloading now that the uh, the world is opening. <laughs> yeah, the the other one uh, we've been playing a lot with is the flywheel. So um, uh, Chris Duffin from Kabuki sent us one of their flywheel platforms, yeah. and uh, man, we've been uh, I've been playing with that thing, doing like a bunch of leg extensions and just a bunch of hamstring stuff and a bunch of rows and. Uh, even a bunch of curl stuff. And man, that, uh, that flywheel is really cool. Like I saw somebody online has like a seated, uh, leg extension, hamstring curl, uh, that's hooked up to a flywheel. It's, uh, I mean, it's kind of, I want to say it's like six G's, which feels like a lot for just like a single jointed ex or, you know, kind of that single jointed exercise, but man, so we've been doing different replications with his, uh, flywheel setup, man. And it's, uh, it's providing a really interesting stimulus. And, um, I, I, like, I think for me, uh, that's the, how do I say this? There's not too many things that come around, uh, like new things where I look at it. I'm like, Oh, that's, you know, it's interesting. I'm gonna see how that works. That flywheel, I think has such amazing applications and, uh, I'm really excited to use that more in my training. I need to sell a lot more, uh, training sessions so we can buy one of those. <laughs> Uh, check them out. Uh, there's some like uh, uh, platforms and some other ones, but yeah, Chris has been extremely generous and sent us. I mean, we uh, we made a good friendship, and like, dude, he sends me stuff constantly to play with. So I, he's always been very very yeah. generous with us. But uh, he's definitely has got some amazing stuff some with cool that transformer stuff. bar and uh, uh, his trap oh, yeah. bar and also the cap. Oh, uh, it's the gold yeah. standard. Like I haven't squatted with a, a standard bar on my back in almost since the day it showed up. It's such a better yeah. position, especially teaching people to engage their lats and then allowing them to sit yeah. into a better position. Like the amount of times I've had to coach somebody to squat well with a bar and then I can put somebody in that and almost just hack the, you know, hack the situation. Instantly they squat better. I'm like, God damn it. Like this should be prerequisite yeah. for everybody. Yeah, that, I know. We're, we're huge fans of those guys too. I mean, we're same, same for us, right? Like the, 
the trap bar and, and the transformer. I mean, those are just, they, they get used daily around here. Yeah. They become staples for us too. All right. Last few questions here, Joel centered around lacrosse. I'm a uh, division three all-star, but the weight room provided me the opportunity to play. So I got to give back. And you had the opportunity to work with a premier uh, Denver University or is it University of Denver? I think I fucked that up earlier. University of Denver. U- UD uh, squad, and they won the national cha- – were you with the championship squad? I was not, no. Ah. Um, I, I know a lot of the players that were on that team. Um, I was there when uh, Coach Tierney came into the University of Denver. Um, I, was, I, I was at that, like, first level of transition as we, you know, really started to, like, first NCAA tournament I was mm-hmm. there the first time the conference tournament um so you know the it, it was on its way but yeah. yeah unfortunately I was not there when they won it yeah big step for the Denver getting really good at lacrosse because it started to move the sport west and present a lot of opportunity for those west coast people to be exposed because winning changes everything sure. and they were real good um yeah well speak to that then introducing because the weight room is not part of the lacrosse culture so how did you, it wasn't back then. yeah. So how did you aim to create this love and this passion and connection to performance? Once you got stronger and faster, you started to play better. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny cause uh, you know, you and I kind of went back and forth uh, yesterday via email and you kind of posed that question and it's amazing because you're hundred percent right. I mean, when I started at the university of Denver, um, I literally had 35 to 40 guys in the weight room at one time, and it was an absolute circus. Um, you know, we had a ton of kids that, number one, we recruited a lot of Canadian players, and the Canadian players were highly skilled and horribly physically prepared. Mm-hmm. And then you had the opposite of that, which were you had uh, a lot of, like, very uh, high, what I would say, uh status level kids that came out of super, you know, expensive schools, you know, prep schools and things like that, that were massively entitled and stuff like that. Um, And so this like weird dynamic of culture that, you know, you had 40 guys in this room and, and trying to herd cats on a daily basis with, with our training. Um, I had kids that would do everything they could to hide from me in the weight room. You know, because they just they didn't either they didn't want to look stupid because they were massively weak and they had no training experience. And and I had no help being in, uh, you know, a small university where it was like you're just flying solo, you know, with with uh, whatever team you were working with until we gradually built an intern program. Um, and then even when I started in 2007 with uh, the Colorado Mammoth, um, I have a great story. I tell people that my first day at training camp, I walk in and this is the first time I'm meeting like over half of the guys that are, that are walking in the door and a guy whose Jersey is now hung in the rafters um, in ball arena downtown where we play in the avalanche and the nuggets play walks up to me and says, hi, my name is Brian shakes my hand. He goes, never worked out. Don't plan to. Welcome to team. Walks <laughs> off. And I'm like, holy shit. Like what just happened? Like I'm literally just 
dumbfounded. I don't even know what to say. Like, it was just like, he just drew a line right in the sand and just bolts. And I'm like, whoo, okay. what I get myself into here. And, you know, you fast forward that year after year after year. And that same athlete, like two or three seasons later is texting me like, Hey man, I did this today. Like, you know, he's bragging about like his workout that he did, you know, and it became something that as you look at the game today at, at, at all levels, you know, mainly speaking like collegiate and, and professional level, um, it went from where at the pro level guys used to just be like, ah, it's time for the cross season. Uh, I'm going to get my bag out of the trunk and we'll get going here mm -hmm. to, if you show up at like, we're getting, we're right now, um, one month from training camp for us. And we'll have 35 guys show up that are competing for 24 spots. And probably realistically out of those, uh, extra 10 to 12 guys that are going to show up, those 10 to 12 guys are probably competing for two spots that are probably available on our roster, like going in. That's just fact. And if you show up with that mentality today, it's going to be a short camp for you mm -hmm. because the level of play, the speed, the strength, um, how prepared guys are now compared to the examples I just gave you, it's, it's just night and day. And, and so um, there's been a lot of, you know, head scratching over the years of, of trying to get to that point. Um, obviously now this will be my 15th season with the team. Uh, we were fortunate enough to finally, uh, win the championship last year, which was something that, I mean, quite frankly, I wondered if it was ever going to happen. And, and, uh, we just got on a run. I've always felt like we were really close and the right dynamic of guys and locker room and, and leadership and, and then just starting to play well when it when it really mattered, um, you know, it's made my job finally get to the point where our veteran players and our older guys are, are completely bought in. You know, I walk in this morning at, at 730 or a little after seven and three of my guys were, were already here um, because they still have jobs and don't get paid millions of dollars. And one of the guys who's going to be a rookie that we invited to camp was in here working out with them as I walked in the door. Nice. And, you know, that's that's something that as you know, 10 to 15 years ago never would have happened. If I if there were a handful of guys that were supposed to show up at seven o'clock in the morning, there's days I might have sat here by myself and been like, I might as well go have breakfast, um, you know, so uh, that part of it's definitely something that that's been refreshing and in now with the amount of time, like I said, travel wise, uh, you know, I'm in and out of Canada over 10 times a year between now and June. Um, our schedule continues to ramp up and get longer every year. Last year was the longest season in the history of our league where, like I said, we started November and the game three of the championship was the third weekend of June. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, if I hated it, I would definitely have been gone a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, it's awesome to see the success of both the NLL and then the PLL. We've had a couple yeah. PLL guys on the podcast that uh, yeah. really owe, owe their career to training. And that's that's why we highlighted them. Um, so yeah. it's, it's fun to watch, man. And, and the, the dudes that put in the work, that's that's what we want to highlight, man. So you're definitely doing some good work. Do other NLL teams have strength coaches? Um, there's a, there's a good amount of them now. Um, but it, there's still teams that don't, which is, which is amazing. Um, Georgia has, has a strength coach. Um, they've actually contracted with play 
uh, for a few seasons now uh, to bring in a coach there. Uh, Ron McKeefrey actually started that when he was still out in Georgia. Um, Dan Noble, who's a tremendous coach, he was at the Hill Academy uh, for quite a few years and now kind of works on his own. He works for the Halifax team. Um, I'm actually just getting ready to um, myself and Matt Nine, who's at Salisbury University, mm -hmm. uh, just committed to uh, editing a new book for human kinetics on lacrosse training. And so we're pulling in guys like Jay Dyer and, and just a whole host of, uh, of folks. Like we're trying to get uh, John Grant Jr. and Paul Rabel and some other folks to put together, um, you know, the, the forward. And, and hopefully that'll be a really good piece where a lot of, of good people that have trained and, and working with high level lacrosse folks uh, will, will be able to hopefully create a good piece that that will suit the game much better that I don't think you know there hasn't been a lot out there especially when you look at, at books and, and training for lacrosse so that was the reason that I was like you know I, I've written a couple books previously and, and when this one kind of popped up I'm like this would be a good one for me to put my my, my hat on and, and maybe my last one <laughs> yeah awesome ride books yeah my uh, high school team half play football half don't so it's amazing to see over the years the ones that do weightlift in school, even though it's, you know, high school football weightlifting, just to see the jumps that they take and aiming to just bridge the gap even on the, the team I'm coaching the best I can. But, man, yeah, the, yeah, for lack of skill, if you can push somebody around, they'll find a place for you on the field. No, I, yeah, I, for I, sure. I do know from uh, from the clips we watched of the guys that were uh, lacrosse. It's uh, such an exciting sport. Uh, you okay. know, I just wasn't exposed to it. Um, yeah, and that's that's and and then also the seeing these guys. I mean, move through space. I mean, you want to talk about different planes of motion, transverse. I mean, these guys are doing uh, some amazing things. I mean, like spinning and jumping in the air. I mean, the the movement is extremely they, athletic. Yeah, a lot of the top are they're not big guys. So we're talking five seven. I mean, 160 pounds, but they're the best of what they do. So it's it's cool. It's an opportunity for the smaller youth mm -hmm. out there to get some PT. Yeah. Sounds good. Our, uh, yeah, I mean, and that, you know, to go along with the training piece, I mean, the guys, they just keep getting bigger and faster. You know, our, our defensive core is 6'4", 6'5", 215, 220, and they can all move. They can all run. They're super agile. And... Um, you know, so it, it is, it's uh, the same as the same as, as you, you know, like I mentioned growing up, how much lacrosse you think was in Nebraska in the nineties. Um, <laughs> About the same amount that was in California <laughs> in the nineties. Zero. Zero. And, and that's what's funny. People always ask like, Oh, where'd you play? And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've got to stick downstairs, but um, you know, and so as, as I started at the university of Denver, it just became something that, you know, the same, same as you, I was like, man, this would have been awesome. I would have loved to have been exposed to this game. And, and that's why I think you're seeing the growth in it the way that you do is, is once kids get their hands on a stick and, and get out and start throwing and catching and shooting and stuff like that, it just, it catches on like wildfire. And it, it is, it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are choosing it as an alternative, especially with all the stuff that's going on with, you know, footballs and football and concussions, not that they don't exist in lacrosse, but, um, you know, in, in Colorado, I mean, she, you, and I know it's getting very big in Texas too, right? You can drive around and, and there's kids playing lacrosse everywhere here. So. No, it's a good sport. Um, I was, uh. I uh, had an interesting conversation with my daughter about this yesterday uh, when I was growing up. I mean, you know, we're of similar age. 
uh, if you were going to be a professional athlete, it was either football, basketball, or baseball. Uh, maybe there were some yeah. Olympic sports. And uh, other than that, like there was no, I mean, I, I knew some people that ran track, but had to go to Europe to even make any money at it. So like there was really only a few veins right. for this stuff. And now it's like, uh, um, you know, we're here in Austin. It's a big hub for jujitsu. They just had that AD or ADCC, which is the Abu Dhabi Combat Club. They had like five, six, seven, ten thousand people at this event in Vegas, which was uh, no gi jujitsu. I mean, there's uh, lacrosse. Yeah. I mean, all of these sports. There's track. I mean, there's so many things for girls. I mean, girls water polo. It's just it's amazing that uh, there's so much more opportunity to be a professional athlete and to be the pinnacle of whatever you desire to do. Whereas before I felt like if you weren't going to go play baseball or go in the NFL or play poops, I mean, you were pretty much relegated to corporate America. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Uh, Joel, you train any martial artists, any jujitsu folks, combat sports? Um, Yeah, I had, I have a guy, he was on uh, ultimate fighter uh, here couple seasons ago um and he's still kind of working around and i think he's been in uh there's a i think it's a texas promotion but it's also owned by the ufc uh i think it's a reign of fire or something like that um and so i've i've worked with him for the last close to a year um he's a little bit in between right now and he's a big hunter too um so he's kind of off doing his thing for a little bit now, but, um, we've had some before, uh, that have come through the doors, uh, previously it, it, I had, um, we had a handful of guys like early on in early UFC days, um, where we had some guys actually through a gym. I don't know if you guys remember Chris Camozzi. Um, Chris was, was in the UFC for quite a while. He moved into, uh, some kickboxing and now he's kind of moving back into like some bare knuckle stuff. Like he's been around forever. Like I Dude. literally remember when Chris was starting. And, um, you know, he's still at it like over a decade later. And, um, I would say it's, I love working with those guys, but man, that's a tough way to make money. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, I I don't know if you're a fan of the bare knuckle fighting. Uh, they actually have like sanctioned now and actually have this bare, uh, bare, bare knuckle, uh, boxing league. Um, Paige Van Sant, who was in the UFC, she got big into it. I think she also fucking making probably $10, 20000000 million a year in her OnlyFans. But, uh. She and uh, it was hilarious because I saw the clip of her in the bare knuckle thing and she had all this like OnlyFans stuff. And then uh, I was like, oh, oh, she's sponsored by OnlyFans. Oh, I think she it's a good move has OnlyFans account and she was trying to bring notoriety for her OnlyFans. So, uh, fuck, I don't know. Um, but I do know. Yeah. Julie Schneider is a marketer. Uh, I do know, man, that, that bare, right? the bare knuckle fighting is by far uh, like. I've always just been a fight fan. Like I was always a boxing fan. And like now to see these, uh, like, you know, obviously the USC what started in 93. So uh, to see the UFC grow to what it is, but then to also see that there's still space for some of these other things. And the bare knuckle fighting is absolutely fucking savage. Like, I mean, it's like these dudes, yeah. like uh, it, it reminds me like fun of to watch or tough uh, to watch. I enjoy it, but I think it's really good for people to watch because this is effectively what happens to people. If you get into a bar fight yeah. where you get hit one time and your fucking face explodes, like everybody's used to seeing TV and movies where these dudes are like bare knuckle <laughs> fighting and throwing like 20 punches, like the rock and, you know, Dwayne or, yeah. and, uh, and no. Vin, Vin Diesel are throwing no. fucking haymakers at each other, knocking each other over, over uh, tables right. and they don't yeah. even have a Nick on their face. And then you're watching the bare knuckle right. fighting and this, 
dude throws like a heavy overhand right and just splits this dude's face from like his forehead to his nose. And that's more reminiscent of every street fight I've ever been in and seen. And so like I fucking hate that TV has glamorized this because all you have to do is watch these dudes. And then in the post fight uh, production, you're like seeing these guys faces and you're like, this is what every drunk idiot that ever goes out to a bar wants to fight somebody needs to watch this because this is how 99% of the shit ends up. Yeah. Nah, it's, I'm, it, I'm good on that. Oh, dude, it's it, it's I've awesome. I said to I had see. a face made for radio, <laughs> but I, I definitely not not enjoyed getting it punched very many times. Uh, my <laughs> my dad always said, uh, "Be careful uh, of getting to a place where you hold your fan club meetings in a phone booth." Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and and I think that's the interesting dynamic with that too is with the massive uh, you know rise in popularity of of all the MMA stuff and and whatever. I tell you what, you know, back in the day, which makes you sound really old as soon as I said that, um, you used to, you know, you could be dumb at a party or whatever, and two guys might fight and be done with it. And now it's like, yeah, you never know who you're going to run into if you mouth off at a bar some night and some dude's highly trained and yeah. can put you in a pretzel or freaking have you absolutely on your back in no time. It's like, hmm. I'm too old for that. <laughs> there's like, uh, I, I think there's like 50 jujitsu gyms in San Diego. So like if yeah. you were to go out down on like uh, the gas lamp or in downtown PB. San Diego, yeah, like PB or really down the gas lamp in San Diego and like people okay. were being jerks, you had like a probably about a like 70% chance of like running into somebody that had some form of combat training. Same in Orange County. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, like yeah. the age old deal of like seeing the guy with the cauliflower ears, you're like, oh. Uh, that guy's ears are pretty fucked up. I'm just going to stay away. We had a guy that come train with us yesterday who had some serious cauliflower ears. I'm like, man, that's gotta be, well, I don't know, maybe for, maybe most people don't know what to look at, but you see a dude with ears like that. You're like, ah, this dude's going to fucking, I'm just going to go buy that man. Yeah. I'll I'll be like, Ooh, I was like, did I spill your drink? Let me get you two. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's probably one of the situations now today. I mean, I, I, I still remember, uh, UFC one, which was by far the best one because uh, uh, Horse Gracie came out and submitted all those dudes. Because like one yeah. of those, you know, like they they just hadn't seen Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the ground fighting and the way it was done. There were no weight classes. Uh, it, there was no None. time limits. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't a one-day nope. tournament. So they just did. Yeah, they just kept going. So if you won, yeah. you progressed. Yeah, you might have to. They might have like five, five or six people that they had to fight. Yeah. Yeah. In a day. And, like and a bracket. And uh, yeah. And dude, uh, uh, Horace, who, who wasn't a physically impressive dude, like his brother was way more physically impressive, but I think they put him into it the way the story goes because they wanted to show that a guy who doesn't look like an absolute fucking monster goes in and submits all these dudes. And uh, no, oh, to, yeah. this, to, to this day, it's still the greatest like fucking deal I've ever seen that he showed up and submitted all of these dudes and crushed them. And it was great. Yeah, yeah I know. I've seen- he, just, he just had to soak one or two punches every time. That's all he did. He just soaked one or two punches, get him to the ground. They had no idea what to do, and it was over. Yeah, it was chokes, arm bars. I mean, it was great. And uh, I remember, like, seeing it and then seeing to where it's progressed. I really wish they would uh, Dana White, who uh, – actually, Dana White just got in shape. Uh, I was telling you, he uh, he had some guys come in that did his DNA, said you got 10 years to live, and he got his fat ass in shape. So these, the, this guy said, hey, I can take your DNA and give you an accurate snapshot down to within a day or two of how long you're going to live. What? And the guy was like, based upon your physical state, you have 10 years left. And so now I think Dana's got like, he's posted a picture because I follow him on Instagram. Uh, he, he's gotten in shape and he's like, I, I had like, 
I don't want this to be the end of it. I got too much to do. So I appreciate that. But I wish Dana White would take a snapshot and we could go back in time to the original UFC one and do it the same way. No weight classes, um, no time limits the tournament and, and make it a tournament where like you draw the brackets and if you fight, you fight as many people as you can on the this day. This is the plot of Mortal Kombat. <laughs> well, uh, so so the thing that, uh, uh, I don't know if you guys watched the most recent one where uh, I think it's uh, Hazmet, who's the the dude with the beard. Um, uh, so uh, Hazmet doesn't make weight and then he's not able to fight Nick Diaz. Uh, so Nate yeah. Diaz, and then they gave Diaz another fight, and then they let this dude fight another uh, another dude. Well, why did they do that? Um, uh, like in in previous years, if you didn't make the fucking weight, like you're out. And I think the guy was such a big draw, and they said that the doctors, whatever, but he missed his weight by seven pounds, so they gave him another fight, which I don't know has ever happened. So they just waited. They just found a, somebody a, a little bit heavier. But, but if you think about the way the UFC is, it's kind of stupid on weight classes. Like in boxing, you have all these weight classes that are like, what's every six, eight, ten pounds? In the UFC, it's like yeah. like you go from like, uh, uh, what is it, like 85 to like 99. <laughs> and then it's like 265. So, I mean, they have these huge, huge gaps. So, I think they need to do more weight classes. And uh, But I definitely know, like, I mean, there, there was one dude in there who, uh, who was fighting at 85 and would make the weight and then put on 40 pounds and then showed up at like 225. Well, how much they got? 24 hours? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that dude was able to cut that much weight. I, I just think, at least in the fight game, for me personally, I would love to see them have to weigh in like an hour before they get out on the mat like or uh, they, they enter the cage. Like, it just feels like, I mean, shit, dude. Like, I, I don't know. Um, maybe I'm some more of a purist in it, but I'd still love to see that yeah. UFC one where – you know what? All the weight classes, just fucking throw them out. No time limits and just send dudes out there. Yeah. Because so heavyweight, 265. Lightweight, yeah. 205. Mm-hmm. Middle, 185. Welter, 170. Yeah. Lightweight, 155. Yeah, they got four weight classes. Well, they got more. It's just super. No, Flyweight's but, 125. Yeah, but that's in the UFC. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, whereas in boxing, I mean, they, it's like every six oh. or eight pounds. Oh, yeah. I know they do jujitsu where they'll do like uh, like long like two hour matches to just prove who's the best. So like they Bored. go, uh, they'll they'll set a time limit like two hours, and then the guy like the person with just the most one on one for two hours. So oh. so the guy with the most submissions, kind of like we went to that flow grappling deal where uh, Gordon Ryan uh, wrestled that dude, that exhibition, and they they set a time limit and he like tapped the dude out like the guy tapped out what like six times. So they'll do that where they set a time and they'll be like, okay, who's the best? The guy that gets the most submissions or the most, however it works. And they'll do that for a couple hours. I mean, not very exciting to watch, kind of boring, but pretty yeah. neat that dudes are that skilled to be able to go out and do that combat. Yeah. Joel's jujitsu just blowing up in Denver, like everywhere else. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that <clears throat> I know, I don't know how they do that with, you know, like rankings and whatever, but um, you know, I know like, elevation fight team and and a few of the other ones here that have had you know so many really really high level ufc guys that the amount of, of gyms here that um you know either have whether it's just jujitsu or whether they're you know a, a full mma t- style place i mean they're they're everywhere i mean i know people all the time that oh i'm going to jujitsu i'm going to jujitsu, you know and and i think that 
Denver's become a really good hub with that. If you look at the amount of guys like Neil Magny and, and Cowboy Cerrone and um, uh, uh, who was a uh, heavyweight that fought Lesnar for the title. Um, he was from Denver. Uh, I mean, there's just been a whole boatload of them. And so it's kind of become a, a hub a little bit based on, I think, guys wanting to train at elevation and and then you know those gyms have kind of fostered a lot more so there, there's a huge presence of that around here too for sure now they uh, uh recently there's a, a kid who was uh, actually he, he's from here in texas but uh he wrestled at penn state and was a real high level wrestler so he just got in the ufc and uh is fucking murdering these dudes uh i think it's uh, bo nickel so i just saw a bunch of clips of him yesterday and uh man uh and he's you know uh was a high level uh wrestler you know um uh, you know, from Penn State and is out there actually, you know, going to do pretty well in the UFC just because I don't know if they've really had any really high-level wrestlers. I mean, uh, who is it? Um, Guzman. Uh, yeah, Guzman. Uh, then also, uh, was it Mendez? Um, God, I'm trying to remember who else was yeah, the wrestler. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. There, there's been some good wrestlers, but this kid's pretty legit. So, I man, I'm – I'm uh, it. so you, you're going to laugh at this. I had um, – you know, obviously retired from the NFL. I didn't watch NFL football for a long time uh, just because I was still fucking mad uh, about the way it ended. I wasn't ready. And like, it took me a while. And then I started watching football again. And then uh, I, for some whatever reason, I got mad at fucking paying direct TV. I thought it was a scam. I really wasn't using it. So I canceled it, which canceled our NFL ticket. And so we didn't really watch it. And then my wife's like, like, let's fucking enough. Let's get football back. So we ordered Hulu. And the problem is, is all those streaming services, you need like a newer TV and our TV was old. So I had to, I was telling Chris this, I was like, fuck it. So I went down, I got a Best Buy open box, came home with it, set up on Sunday. And we started watching uh, the NFL and the quality of the HD and the the cameras and just the experience on TV in these new, like, uh, you know, on Hulu on these games is absolutely amazing to the point where uh, I've watched a bunch of NFL on Sunday. I watched the game last night just because the experience is so much more rich. Um, yeah. I, uh, the, the NFL and TV has done such a good job with these streaming services. Like the, the, the fan experience of sitting there and like the, it, it's really pretty amazing, but it's the same within the fight stuff. Yeah. It's, you're going to have to order the fights now. And I mean, I'll just come over. I, I dude, I, uh, I do. <laughs> I love, love, love watching the fights. I love the UFC. Um, so, I mean, anything like, uh, where you get two individuals that get that much opportunity to train and then they get to go pit themselves against it. I mean, uh, in the UFC, I mean, you know, I always think of, uh, you know, what was that, uh, Mosval dude, like hitting that dude with the knee and knocking him out the first, you know, first touch. Whereas, you know, football's more like, Hey, I'm going to line up and we're going to one-on-one fight for three hours. So, I mean, I, it's just two different things, but I still just love the combat nature of it. And I love to see people effectively sharpen their blade and then try to go out there and fucking slice a dude so it's yeah, great to watch for sure now they, they they've done a good job in terms of like what's coming out i mean there's so much to watch that uh i feel like man there's a lot of opportunity so it's good so i'm exciting cool joel awesome thank you for your time dude i know we were up down and around but if yes. people want to learn more where do they, can they go to follow you what you're doing fast performance and all that good stuff yeah. Um, fastperformance.com. That's our website. Um, hunt High Harvest Outdoors uh, is uh, hunthighcarvest.com if you're into the, the outdoor and the hunting piece. Um, if you look me up on basic socials, it's just Joel Rather, um, at Joel Rather. Uh, and 
always always up to chat always up to share always up for for new connections and things like that so i'm not too tough to find and and um i appreciate you guys having me on i thank you guys for your time it's always fun to you know, it's crazy uh, how, like you said, we kind of bounced around, but I'm like, well, we could talk for another couple hours if we wanted to. It's <laughs> usually how it goes. Yeah, it's always the way. Yeah. All right. So, and then, there you have it. Thank cool. you for listening to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye. Bye.